Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Similarly, in Kentucky, we had a case a few years ago, and it involved an, a woman who just turned 18. She was trafficked for sex as a teenager, but she was also charged with accessory to robbery because her pimp trafficker committed a robbery, and she had to be there with him. But it was him committing the robbery, but she was charged as an accessory, so she ended up in the justice, the criminal justice system. And her probation officer and the judge saw her case. They reviewed it. They saw her history of ex- exploitation and abuse, and they said, we can do better by her. We can do better by her. And they had the discretion to do that. And so they chose, instead of having her sit in a jail cell right, and serve out time, they chose to call local service providers and say, we want to help her. We think you all can help her. So we would like to refer her to you and say that she doesn't have to serve time in jail if, as long as she's getting services from you. There are better ways to address these situations, even when there is is some sort of criminality associated with it, whether it's valid or invalid. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. 
everyone. Welcome to another episode of Paint Soup Politics. On today's episode, we're talking about all the things. Welcome to the show. Okay, we're going to be talking about exciting changes to Paint Soup Politics format. We're going to be talking about exciting pantsuit politics events and some controversy surrounding the Women's March. We're going to be talking about the continued government shutdown, and we're going to be talking about a couple blockbuster reports from the Times and the Post regarding our president and his relationship with Russia. And y'all, that is just in the first segment. Then we are going to talk about human trafficking with Marissa Castellanos. January is Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and we were really excited to talk to Marissa, who has expertise in this area, about the breadth and depth, really, of this issue and some things that we can all do to lend our work and time to doing better in this regard. And it really opened my eyes to the scope of this problem and how we really can help make a difference. And then, of course, we'll close out the show by talking about what's on our mind outside politics. So first up, we wanted to share some changes to our format. We missed the primers, but we're going to change the way we do these primers on certain topics. And what we're planning on doing is about once a month, we'll do a primer, kind of, on Friday. But it's going to be a little more fun. I think we're just going to focus on like the top five things you need to know about this subject on Friday. So we're going to give you a baseline of foundation just these are the basics you need to understand about this topic. Then on Tuesday, we'll go in depth on the issue and how we feel about it and right, left side, all the extra stuff. And hopefully by the time we give you the basics on Friday, you'll have time over the weekend on Monday to give us some of your thoughts and we incorporate those into our conversation on Tuesday. I'm so excited about this. The nerd in me is so happy about this. And I think primer with a long eye is the right word because we are just trying to create a foundation, not give you A to Z on any particular issue, but let's create a foundation for good policy discussion. So the first thing we want to do is focus on the power of committees in the House of Representatives. So this Friday, we're going to talk with you about the five things that we really want you to know about committees in the House. And then on Tuesday, we'll talk about the powers of those committees and how they're already being exercised. So get excited about the new format coming to Pantsuit Politics with a little more of our old school, let's lay down the basics on these issues before we discuss them. We also wanted to talk this morning about the Women's March. As you know, we are doing an event with Swanee Hunt Alternatives about the seismic shift happening in gender politics the evening before the Women's March. We want to be really clear that this event is not affiliated with the march in any way. We're not involved with the national organization surrounding the Women's March. It's just a great time to have this discussion because so many people are going to be in Washington, D.C. for this event who are interested in these issues and It's really, I think, an inspiring way to launch into activism like that, to get a bunch of people together to really think through the issues. Again, we do have an ask, which is if you are involved in any Women's March Facebook groups, if you wouldn't mind sharing the Facebook group event page for Seismic Shift so that more people can hear about the event and hopefully attend. It's from four to seven, but it's not come and stay for three hours. We're going to have several segments. We're going to talk about how the press covers women in politics. We're going to talk about women in the Republican Party and women in the Democratic Party. We're going to be talking to people, women who've run for office, women who are trying to get more women to run for office. It's going to be sort of almost like a a workshop or a symposium where we're talking about a lot of different subjects so you can drop in and drop out. And we're really excited about the event. It's going to be at the historic Metropolitan AME Church 
Lodge. And we've been moved to their sanctuary. We're really, really excited about being in that beautiful space. So come see us Friday, 4 to 7. Share the event. We're really excited to be there. But we did want to talk before we dive into the news about some of the controversy surrounding the Women's March. We've had several listeners reach out about the cloud of anti-Semitism hanging over the Women's March. And I have fallen into a little bit of a rabbit hole reading about the relationships between the women who really got the Women's March off the ground, the original posts that launched the Women's March, and just kind of the history of this still very new event. And I am sad that there is so much darkness surrounding something that I think has been a great comfort and not just a great comfort in terms of a symbolic act, but something that really has had positive externalities. So many women converting this participation in the march to a run for office, to voting for the first time, to working for a campaign, to donating to campaigns. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to lose the beautiful things that have resulted from the Women's March because of the way that we have kind of celebritized the people who got it off the ground or the people who became the faces of it. I also don't want to be dismissive of a pretty serious problem that has emerged in those discussions. And I was telling Sarah before we started recording, you know, I always struggle when I'm talking about anything related to Jewish faith and culture, because I'm so uneducated about that faith and culture, which tells you how badly we have marginalized it. I know so many people who practice the Jewish faith. There, It's not like it's a small group of people in my area or in our country. And I'm still very ignorant about important traditions and important history. And so I don't want to make light of that challenge. I also want to make sure that we continue to focus on any sort of activism, whether it's the Women's March or Parkland or any of the great movements that we've seen over the past couple of years, knowing that those movements are bigger than the individuals who are great at talking and tweeting and organizing. And I think as any movement grows and there is intersectionality between multiple groups where there has been oppression be it between white women and black women, where there has been conflict, be it be between Israeli Americans and Palestinian Americans. Like, this is inevitable. I don't like the narrative that it means, like you said, that it's a darkening of everything that's come about. I, I just think it's a sign that it's a big movement and that it is talking to people in new and important ways and that inevitably, as a result, there will be conflict. It doesn't mean that the conflict is unimportant. Of course it's important. Of course that discussing, you know, the ways in which Black women have been left out of feminism are essential. They are essential. But we can't have those conversations and move forward if at the first sign of conflict or any sort of intersectional fighting, we shut everything down. I just... I want, I think it's, we have to respect everyone. We want everyone to feel heard and we want everyone to feel part of the movement or a part of their own piece of the movement. I don't think there's anything wrong with the Jewish American groups that are starting their own march in New York City. I don't think that detracts or deflects. I think it's, if you need a new space in order to continue to talk about these important issues, that's fine. As long as we just keep moving forward. Sometimes that means we won't move forward together. Sometimes, it, it, you know, we're a big country. 
with a lot of different women and any women's movement is going to, it's not going to be a monolith. Just like any Jewish American movement is not going to be a monolith. We're all going to feel different ways about things. And I just hope that we can continue, we can recognize the positivity that's come out of the Women's March, continue to talk about these important issues, continue to have activism around these important issues without shutting each other down. I think it's a wonderful thing that Jewish organizations have organized marches because good activism, and you, this is coming from the non-marcher in the room, right? This is <laughs> this is not my way. But I think any kind of good activism should not become like the Women's March TM, right? Mm-hmm. This This should not have a corporate structure and feel. And where there is conflict, it should give rise to new leadership to adequately represent perspectives that are being left out elsewhere. That, to me, is the essence of good debate in the public sphere versus in the private sector. And I say this as someone who normally prefers to do my advocacy in the private sector. But I, I think that this is ultimately a conflict that I think we're served by having it surfaced as long as we can continue to have good dialogue about it instead of throwing it all away. And what I really don't want to happen is for it to be covered as just infighting among women in ways that reinforce terrible stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a little bit of writing in that regard. I think fortunately for the most part, especially where women are covering this issue, women understand the thorniness of intersectionality mm-hmm. and and are doing their best to have a, a reasoned conversation about what this means and what's next. Speaking of reasoned conversations and what's next, (laughs) that seems like a great transition to the government shutdown that is seemingly never going to end because there is no reasonable conversations happening. There is just a complete and total impasse. So today is day 25 of the shutdown. It is the longest in our country's history. The narrative over the weekend in the media seemed to me to be, well, nobody has any reason to cave. And it made me sad because I feel like depicting this as an issue of one side winning and one side losing Mm -hmm. misses the fact that there are no winners in this. It's just going to be, I think, how can we mitigate the losses? We're in a terrible position in the way we're treating our government workers. And the president decided to make it so much more difficult to get to a compromise with his inflammatory tweets over the weekend. When he started talking about Pat Buchanan's idea that the United States border must be militarized in order to save America, he made it infinitely more difficult for Democrats to come to the table and budge in any direction on this. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it no longer sounds like our law enforcement personnel has made a reasonable judgment and request. It gets back, to, which is where, you know, Republicans were trying to take this, right? Republicans mm-hmm. were trying to say, like, forget the rallies and who's going to pay for the wall Mexico chanting. Forget all of that. Let's focus on reasonable security needs that all of us as members of Congress have been briefed on and are aware of. And let's get to a number. And Democrats were saying, That is really hard for us because he keeps talking about the wall, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then he doubles and triples down on the wall and adds a Pat Buchanan exponent. I was encouraged by the reporting that seems to focus on the totally disjointed impact of the shutdown. That's for some Americans, it's just complete and total devastation. And then some are seemingly oblivious. I think that that is a really interesting 
lens with which to view the shutdown. And we've talked about it too, because I wish we saw the entire country as one community. I don't think we do anymore. Sadly, I think it's, you know, it's all about my tribe and how does it affect my tribe and or my state or my community. Meanwhile, our fellow Americans, particularly those that are federal workers or federal contractors, are really suffering. If I had to read one more story about people selling their belongings on eBay, I was going to cry. Like, it's just so depressing that we can't come to agreement on the basic functioning of our government. And I don't know where the end is. I really, really don't. I mean, he seems to have backed away from this national emergency thing. I mean, I don't know if the answer is to pressure Mitch McConnell, because I do think it's interesting, the sort of analysis that he has been a key component of all the other ones ending, and he's stayed completely absent from this. He is a dealmaker for all his faults. He is a dealmaker. And, you know, I wish, I never thought I would wish for Mitch McConnell, but I do wish Mitch McConnell would get involved. This has got to end. It's just hard to know what is actually motivating the president. I think what motivates Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell is knowing that he's going to get it done, right? And -hmm. I feel like the reason he has mostly been quiet here is because he could negotiate a deal that conceptually has the president's backing and then that deal be vetoed the next day because of something wholly unrelated to the federal budget. And that's why I thought Peter Baker's piece in The New York Times this week about the Trump era being nonstop political war was really well done and poignant. And so I thought I would read just the initial first couple of paragraphs of it because I think it's a good setup for what we want to talk about next. Peter Baker writes, so it has come to this. The president of the United States was asked over the weekend whether he is a Russian agent and he refused to answer. The question, which came from a friendly interviewer, not one of the fake media journalists he disparages, was the most insulting thing I've ever been asked, he declared. But it is a question that has hung over his presidency now for two years. Those who thought the now 23-day government shutdown standoff between Mr. Trump and Congress has been ugly have not seen anything yet. The border wall fight is just the preliminary skirmish in this new era of divided government. The real battle has yet to begin. With Democrats now in charge of the House, the special counsel believed to be wrapping up his investigation, media outlets competing for scoops, and the first articles of impeachment already filed, Mr. Trump faces the prospect of an all-out political war for survival that may make the still unresolved partial government shutdown pale by comparison. And I think what's so discouraging for me is For what? His political survival is the number one priority for the country. When particularly are the Republicans in Congress going to see that, like, this is all cost and no benefit? You know, in Watergate, at least they could look to the election and say, well, the Democratic result of this election was a walloping. I mean, Nixon got like, I mean, I think the uh, McGovern, what, got like five electoral votes. Like, I mean, it was like nothing. He just Wallop. So it was very difficult to look at that and say, oh, my God, how do we go against this incredible Democratic result of our election? Well, that's not the case here, guys. <laughs> you know, more Americans voted for Hillary Clinton. What are you waiting for? Like, this is all his administration seems to be all cost and no benefit, particularly for the Republican Party, for the Republican members of Congress. I just I don't know. 
Well, I think this is where another paragraph from Peter Baker is really relevant. He says, lost in all this may be any chance of bipartisan policymaking. At stake in the current fight is just $5.7 billion for Mr. Trump's promised border wall, roughly one-eighth of one percent of the total federal Mm. budget. If one-eighth of one percent of the total budget can prompt the longest government shutdown in American history, then the potential for further clashes over the remaining 99.87 percent seems considerable. On issues Mm -hmm. like health care, taxes, climate change, guns, and national security, the two sides start this era of divided government far apart. And I think the point for me I understand, I don't agree with this, but I understand that the calculus for many Republicans has been, we might not like his style, but we can get things done through him. But that has not really been the case other than the tax law. I'm not sure. And the the tax law and the judiciary. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what Republicans think they've really gotten done through him that has been worth everything else. And the opportunity to do that is gone now with a Democratic House in place. At the same time, even if you take the best version of the reporting that was done over the weekend, it's hugely problematic. Consideration of declaring a national emergency at the border to me means we set a precedent that almost anything is a national emergency. Mm -hmm. And now we have a monarch, not an executive under our constitutional understanding of that office. You know, the reporting from the Washington Post that the president has gone to great pains to conceal the details of his conversations with Vladimir Putin. Okay, take the very best version of that. Let's say that it was a conversation that any of us could have listened to and felt good about, that there is nothing nefarious going on. It is not the president's prerogative to keep secrets like that. Our government Mm -hmm. needs that information to be shared just for continuity of our foreign policy, if nothing else. He doesn't get to be a king. And the Republican Party's one of the reasons for being of the Republican Party, in my mind, is to say, wait a second, even if you're trying to do exactly the right thing, you don't get to be a king. Mm -hmm. And he's done that over and over with the party's support and collaboration on it. Well, and here's what's so frustrating to me about the reporting, particularly about his conversations with Putin. In the Washington Post article, they talk about part of the reason he started basically taking the notes away from the interpreter and instructing people not to even tell members of his own administration what was said is because he was frustrated by leaks that were embarrassing. Well, they were embarrassing because you said things you were not supposed to say. And it is not your prerogative to decide that the transparency of democracy doesn't serve your political will or your political benefit, and therefore you get to change them. I think that there is this thread of, again, I know best. I know best, and my political survival and my political instincts are what's most important. They say that that's why he wants to be in the meetings by himself is because, you know, this is the administration's line. He wants to be in the meetings by himself because he feels like staffers undermine his ability to negotiate. Sorry, yeah, Congress undermines the ability of the president to pass laws, but that's called a democracy because we don't want things to be quick and easy in a democracy because that's how you end up with, like you said, that's what happens in a monarchy. It's quick and easy for the king and terrible for everybody else. Like, it's not supposed to be quick and easy, and it's not supposed to be protecting you from political embarrassment. That's not the point. That's not the underlying mission of a democratic system. And so I just I'm totally frustrated, not only because he doesn't seem to understand the process, but also 
how could somebody that's supposed to have such good political instincts not see that if you are being embarrassed by revelations, the answer is not more secrecy? I mean, how hard is that to perceive? If you're embarrassed by revelations about your conversations with Russia, if you if you are a president in the midst of an investigation into Russia's interference in our election, secrets is not the answer. And I'll tell you what else really surprised me from that article is, you know, they talk about the interpreter's notes or the administration notes, but there's a link at the end that will take you to the Clinton Library's recently declassified notes from meetings with Boris Yeltsin. The quote-unquote notes of his advisors are full and total transcripts of the entire conversation, starting with their toast to each other's health. These are not like bullet points, notes from a meeting. This is a total and complete transcript so that our intelligence communities, our State Department, the White House can piece apart what was said. What does this mean? None of that is happening. We have huge entire gaps in the history of the security classifications of the conversations between these two very important countries, one of which is ours. I just, it's mind-boggling. And I don't think you have to get to the president as a Russian agent to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So the other big reporting over the weekend was a New York Times piece that the FBI had both opened a criminal investigation into whether the president's firing of James Comey constituted obstruction of justice and a counterintelligence investigation that basically says if he obstructed justice in order to fire Comey to interfere with the Russia investigation, that was, in fact, acting on Russia's behalf, that the two Mm -hmm. really can't be separated. Is that your reading of it, Sarah? Yeah, I think that sounds right. In a way... That is shocking. And in another way, it's kind of the question that everybody's been circling around for the past two years anyway. And what I appreciated about this reporting is I think it was a good reminder to everyone who has lost the plot, and I think that's a lot of people, that Mm -hmm. ultimately this is not about Donald Trump. It is about the United States of America. I heard Chuck Chodd on Meet the Press describe it this way, that sometimes it feels like Trump is the hub and Russia is just a spoke. And this has been a reminder that Russia is really the hub and Trump is probably just a spoke, right? But this is Mm -hmm. much more about what Russia planned and what Russia has been executing and what role consciously or unconsciously the president has played in that. For me, in particular, in the New York Times article, I think the most illuminating part, particularly with regards to what you were just, the point you were just making about Russia and Trump, She says, Lisa Page, who's a former bureau lawyer, told House investigators in a private testimony, in the Russian Federation and in President Putin himself, you have an individual whose aim is to disrupt the Western alliance and whose aim is to make Western democracy more fractitious in order to weaken our ability, America's ability, and the West's ability to spread our democratic ideals. That's the goal, to make us less of a moral authority to spread democratic values. And to me, I read that and I think, well, he's done it. I mean, mission accomplished. So anything he's done, whether it goes all the way to Donald Trump being a Russian agent or not, has been successful, and he will continue to do it because he has done that. He has made us less of a moral authority. He has destabilized the Western alliance. And whatever role Donald Trump and his campaign played in that, which I don't think at this point we can deny there was some role, we know there was interaction between Russians and the Trump campaign. So since we know there was some interaction, 
We know this was his goal, and we know it's been a success. I don't understand how we cannot hold Donald Trump and the people in his campaign at least in part responsible for what has happened. And to me, the fact that we—that's that's just become the air we breathe, that the, this— our president's campaign was involved with Russia, talked with Russia, shared information with Russia. We learned that Paul Manafort was sharing polling data with Russia because his lawyers don't know how to work Adobe. And I just, it's all so upsetting. It's so upsetting. It's a its a dangerous threat. He's succeeding. And we have no one at the helm with regards to the executive branch who's doing anything about it. I'm just ready to see the Mueller report. I'm ready for the report Mm -hmm. to come out. I'm ready for us to have the full picture. I am exhausted with the drip, drip, drip from media outlets. I appreciate their work. I'm not mad at them. They're doing what they're there to do. But what struck me as I read both of these pieces over the weekend from Washington Post and New York Times is that if I am learning about this now, how long has congressional leadership known about it? Mm -hmm. How long has... Mitch McConnell been aware of these questions? I think a really long time. I think before Mm -hmm. the election for some of this. Yeah. And I want to know that and I want to understand the depth of this in full context, which I believe we will get from Robert Mueller. I do not believe that Robert Mueller is trying to act as some kind of unaccountable, unchecked, know-all, be-all of American politics. I believe he is a law enforcement dedicated servant of the public who is trying to do his best to put together an incredibly difficult narrative. And I just want the whole thing so that we can know where we are and make some decisions from there. All right. Before we move on to our main segment, we're going to share our compliment the other side. Beth, do you have somebody from the other side you'd like to compliment? I do. I don't know if this is a compliment as much as it's bringing awareness to a person, but I was reading about the gubernatorial race that's taking shape in our home state of Kentucky. And one of our candidates for lieutenant governor, Stephanie Horn, who is running with Rocky Adkins, I read that when she initially entered the political world, newspapers announced her candidacy as Andrew Horn's wife is running. Oh, Lord. Her husband has been in the public eye longer than she has, but she has been quietly doing work as a business person, as a school board member, as someone who's really invested in her community. And I am excited that she is making a name for herself in this statewide race. I'm excited that we have two women on the Democratic side as lieutenant gubernatorial candidates. I would like to see a woman as the gubernatorial candidate. I don't think that door is entirely Mm -hmm. closed just yet. Of course, our current lieutenant governor is a woman, and I would like to see more women on the Republican side of this race as well. But I just wanted to draw attention to Stephanie Horn in her own right and um, excited to watch how this election proceeds. We certainly have no shortage of political issues in Kentucky. I wanted to compliment Mike DeWine, Ohio's new governor, who is a Republican. He was recently sworn in, and one of the first actions that he took as the new government was to keep the transgender protections in place through one of his first executive orders. So encouraging, a little bit surprising. Outgoing Republican government Kasich had issued an executive order protecting transgender Ohioans from discrimination, but Governor DeWine kept the protection in place. And I think there's probably, I'm not probably the only person surprised by this. I'm also a little concerned for his wife's forearms because when he was sworn in, she is holding, y'all, you have to come click the link in our show notes. She's holding nine 
Bibles. I've never seen anything like it. Unrelated to his protections for transgendered from discrimination. Good job, Mike DeWine. Another extraordinary thing about that picture is that he is being sworn in by his son who sits on Ohio's Supreme Court. So that's yeah. a small world sometimes. Mm, that's what that that is a nice way to put it. That is a nice way to put it. <laughs> Next up, we are going to be talking with Marissa Castellanos about the politics of human trafficking. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. 
We are delighted to be here with Marissa Castellanos. January is Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. And I was just saying to Marissa that I know embarrassingly little about human trafficking. I have read a big report that she sent over to try to educate myself. But Marissa, we're so excited that you're here sharing with our audience about this important topic. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell everybody just a little bit about you and your career so they know from whom we're getting this insight? Sure. Well, my background is in social work. So I have my master's in social work and I've been working in the anti-human trafficking field specifically for going on 11 years now. I'm the program director at the Bikita Empowerment Initiative at Catholic Charities of Louisville. So I'm approaching this work as a direct service provider, as someone who's working with survivors of both labor and sex trafficking. So it's pretty comprehensive. We do statewide work. So we work geographically in a pretty wide breadth base. And then before this work, I actually did work in other capacities with foreign national workers. I worked with Migrant Head Start. I've worked with some community action organizations in the central part of Kentucky. So I did a lot of work previously with foreign nationals, and I did see labor exploitation among those populations. And so I actually came to this work more from the labor exploitation side, which is kind of unique and unusual. So can you talk a little bit about just broad definition? Because one of the reports you sent us as kind of homework preparing for this conversation involved 25 types of human trafficking. And I was shocked to see the breadth of the issue. Can you help us understand kind of what's the definition for the broad umbrella of this activity? Sure. We have a great federal definition of trafficking, which was passed through the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000. And it really does clearly define both sex and labor trafficking. And we're talking about folks who are being exploited either for commercial sex or for labor, typically labor services. And it's through the use of some sort of control that keeps these individuals from being able to leave or choose not to engage in those activities. And our law defines the control as the use of force or fraud or coercion used to compel or force victims into these activities. And then there's one exception to that rule of control in federal law, which is that any commercial sex acts involving children are considered to be sex trafficking crimes because children cannot consent to engage in commercial sexual activity. And when I say commercial sex, that's very key to the definition of sex trafficking, but commercial sex could include any sexual act that's exchanged for something of commercial value. So that might be prostitution-related activity, pornography, escorting, even stripping, but where something of commercial value is exchanged. It doesn't have to be money. It often is. It could be that the exchange is for drugs, which is certainly a problem in the state of Kentucky right now. It could be that the exchange is for a bus ticket or a place to stay. So that really does widen our understanding of what could fall under this definition of sex trafficking. As I was reading this report, I was struck by how many different types of environments this can occur in, where you have a trafficker who is an intimate partner of the survivor, or you have gang involvement or some kind of large criminal enterprise, a series of salons or something. like I, It just kind of blew my mind how widespread this problem must be. So what I have found really interesting is that human trafficking usually does not exist in an isolated way. It's often happening in conjunction with other criminal activity. And so there is a lot of intersectionality with other sorts of victimizations. And so I really appreciate the report put out by Polaris, the typologies of trafficking, because it really does help delineate all of the different types. And they identify, I believe, 20 five different typologies. And of those 25 typologies, only five of them 
are really specific to sex trafficking, leaving 19 that are specific to labor trafficking. And I think that's really, really helpful in helping to elevate the issue of labor trafficking as well, because it really does impact a lot of different industries that we can intersect with every day as consumers. And so, for example, some of the labor-based typologies they, they talk about in the report is the hotel industry and hospitality, cleaning services, restaurants and food service. These are things that we intersect with every day. And there's a lot of exploitation of workers in those industries. I think what can be hard about that type of intersectionality is that it both elevates the issue and it helps us all to see how it permeates every area of our life. But the flip side of that, I think, is unfortunately that can feel overwhelming. It can feel like how can we ever begin to address human trafficking when it is intermingled with all these different issues? What would you say to somebody that wants to do something but feels like if it's everywhere, how do I even start? I agree with you that it can feel overwhelming, but I would say the positive side of the intersectionality might be, to try to look at it positively, there are many, many ways to engage many ways to engage and impact the issue of trafficking. So, you know, out of all of the programming for services, particularly for crime victims in this country, only a small number of those are specific to trafficking services. However, I would submit that when you're doing foster care and you're a foster parent, you're doing anti-trafficking work. When you're mentoring young people who are some of the most at risk, you're doing anti-trafficking work because you are developing healthy relationships with young people, you're modeling healthy relationships with them, and you're investing with them as a healthy adult. And so you're doing, hopefully, prevention work by engaging in that sort of volunteerism and investing in the lives of young people. Similarly, if you are raising your level of consumerism to a level where you're thinking beyond only when this is important, but only what can I afford and what serves me every day by the products and services that I utilize. But if you're thinking beyond that to who is behind the services that I use, who is making these products and who's providing these services and what are their conditions and how can I impact that? It could feel overwhelming if you look at it that way, but on the flip side, it could feel like I have lots of ways that I can make statements about that. I can be thoughtful about what I buy every day. I can look up, I can do a little homework and think about who made this product. Do I know who made it? Do I know the conditions behind it? And I can choose to spend my seven or $10 on a bag of coffee, right? In a certain way over another way where I'm not thoughtful about the ethical sourcing of the product. Similarly, if you're doing work that's related to sexual assault or domestic violence, if you're working on immigration related issues or working with unaccompanied minors, or you're donating to those issues, I would submit to you that you're also doing anti-trafficking work because there is so much intersectionality. I have a question that I don't quite know how to ask, so bear with me for a second. For people like me who have not thought about or or been exposed to information on labor exploitation specifically, I want to give a little bit of context to that because we're, we're talking, when you talk about hotels and restaurants, the construction industry, nail salons, it's not just that people are working long hours for little pay. I learned in this report that people are being subjected to verbal and physical abuse sometimes, that they are surveilled all day, that often they are forced to live in very substandard conditions. The folks who are at risk for this are folks who seem to 
be enticed into employment with the promise that they're going to be taken care of and that they end up being exploited and none of those promises delivered on. And it made me think about two questions. As I try to become a more informed consumer, how do I spot the risk factors or the red flags that should cause me to ask more questions about what's happening in a particular space? And how do I do that without sort of bringing a a biased lens to it? Does that make sense? Yes. I think that the first thing is that we could be more observant and thoughtful and intentional about the conditions around us in service industries, but also just thoughtful about the people behind our products, right? And so it's almost an exercise in looking at life through a different lens because we are in the United States, consumers. (laughs) We are consumers of products and services. And so this is something that we could exercise, like a new muscle that we could exercise all of the time. And I would say, looking at it more proactively from how can I be thoughtful about the ethics, ethical sourcing of products and the ways that I can be actively involved in doing that in regards to identifying exploitative conditions. I would say learning about some of the um, risk factors, but I I always hesitate to give a short list because really the list could be so long. Polaris has a lot of great indicators on their website, but I would say if you get the indication that someone's being abused or not properly paid, or you do see these substandard conditions, if someone discloses something to you, we know that a lot of labor-based exploitation um, involves health problems. And so maybe someone's going to seek some sort of health care in response to that. But if we identify something that seems high risk for trafficking, I just I think it's so helpful to know that we have the ability to be observant, to make note of those things. And if we have a reasonable suspicion that there is this sort of exploitation, it's important to know what to do with that information. So the National Human Trafficking Hotline is a great resource. You could put that into your phone and just have it with you all the time. You could call that number anytime to report suspected or just suspicious activities. If you feel very, very certain that something might raise to the level of trafficking, you could call your local police department to report that. But also just being um, knowledgeable about the services available in your community that might be able to provide help to folks exiting these sort of conditions. You know, for labor trafficking, we get a lot of our referrals actually from immigration attorneys because a lot of immigration, um, a lot of folks that are seeking immigration relief as part of that process, they tell their, their full story of coming to the United States, but also their conditions in the United States. And so a lot of labor exploitation is uncovered through those affidavits, not even because they were seeking some sort of relief for labor-based offenses, but maybe they were the victim of sexual assault or some other violence. And so attorneys are well-positioned, medical professionals are well-positioned, but even community members just going about our lives every day as consumers, we could potentially see conditions in a restaurant or somewhere else. And I would just say, be observant, be responsible with, with what you do. Please don't try to intervene and take action yourself, but just be thoughtful about how to gather that information and report it. So we've talked a lot about sort of our individual awareness and action particularly as consumers. But so much of this seems to be exploitation that thrives in systematic ways because of, you know, systems in place that are problematic. So I'm just wondering, are there any really good movements either in states or at the federal level that you see as good legislative progress on this issue? 
especially things that people could call their legislators and support? So ShareCup International is a national organization that really looks at sex trafficking of children, and they do a lot of great policy work. So if you're interested in seeing what your state is doing, they have something that they call the Protective Innocence Challenge, and they have graded every state on how they're doing. Um, And so every state has a grade. Now, this is specific only to child sex trafficking, but I should say that in this realm of human trafficking work, we do our best work, frankly, on child sex trafficking because it is the most unifying issue, right? Among all the different ways to address this issue, most folks can come together about child sex trafficking. And so- Lord, I I should hope so. Right. So, and yet there are still some gaps, right? So I don't want to say that the way that we're addressing child sex trafficking is sufficient at this point. But I, I want to use that lens to say we're, we're addressing it the best in regards to that specific part of the issue. And so Shared Hope, in the report, they grade every state, A through F, I believe. At this point, most of the states are falling in the B range, including Kentucky. Um, and then hey, That's handful, pretty good. Right. We've moved up. We, we didn't used to be a B. But there are still a handful of states that get Ds several that have C's, and then there's also about 10 or so that have A's. But when they grade this policy-specific piece of child sex trafficking, they look at the criminalization of domestic minor sex trafficking. They look at criminal provisions that address demand, and that's where Kentucky doesn't quite do so well yet. Uh, Criminal provisions for traffickers, provisions for facilitators, Criminally, Kentucky also is not doing so well in that piece. Can you say more about what that means? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can you can you help us with what that really means Kentucky needs to be doing? Sure. So at the state level, even though we do have this great overlapping federal law called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which provides federal level some criminal provisions, each state has the ability to bring their own state level legislation. And so how are states addressing trafficking criminally? So how are you able to... What do you need in order to bring criminal charges against traffickers, against facilitators, which could also include buyers? Are you doing prevention work um, and awareness around uh, demand? Right. And then another big part of state legislation is services and protections for victims. And what Shared Hope looks specifically at is what do those protections look like for children? And then also what tools are available for folks in the justice system? So what tools are available to law enforcement and prosecutors at the state level? So that is spectrum with which Shared Hope grades all of the states. So I would encourage you to go look at their report and see how is your state doing on addressing child sex trafficking? Because certainly for each state, it's going to look different. And that gives you very specific ways that you could advocate at the state level to improve this. Now, I will say the landscape looks a lot different if you start including adult victims of sex trafficking and across the spectrum, how are we doing on labor trafficking? And I would say each state's grade would probably be substantially lower if we were looking at those. Why is it so difficult to marshal resources and garner consensus around an expanded view of trafficking? That's a loaded question. I think it's so many things. It's not one thing alone. I think that... I mean, I'm comfortable saying racism. Is that too blunt? Uh, No, I would say you could even broaden that to say just the different systemic oppressions Mm -hmm. that are in our systems across the board, which is inclusive of racism, but certainly could include our immigration policies, uh, the way that we look at our workers and how workers are treated, oversight into workers, how we look at women generally. I think this issue intersects a lot with toxic masculinity. Because what we know about sex trafficking and labor trafficking is that they are both 
demand-driven. These crimes would not be happening if there wasn't a demand. So what is the demand? Well, the demand in sex trafficking is there are folks who want to buy women and children for sex. And I would say, you know, sex work is a larger issue and, and sex trafficking is a subset of that, right? But we know that purchasing other people for sex is part of the demand, right? And with children, it's always part of the demand for, for sex trafficking. On the labor trafficking side, we're looking at demand for cheap labor goods and services, right? Because we only want to, we only want to pay so much for the things that we buy and use every day. So we must look at that. What is it that's feeding the demand? And like you said, uh, Sarah, it's not any one thing. It's, it's various factors. And, and I think that really leads me to wanting to talk more about getting ahead of the issue. We do need to do responsive work. It is very important to have agencies that are identifying trafficking, prosecuting cases, bringing traffickers to justice, and providing services to victims. This is so, so important. However, we must do the work, the hard work of getting ahead, and that is doing more prevention work on both sides, right? On the labor side and on the sex trafficking side, we must do the hard work of prevention, and there's not any one way to do it. But I would say, historically, we have addressed trafficking through sort of a criminal justice lens, and that's important and needed. We've been seeing a move more towards addressing human trafficking from a public health lens, which is also very helpful and important, much like we've seen sort of a shift in addressing substance abuse, right? We're starting to address substance abuse more through public health and not only through criminal justice. Can you give us some specifics? What does it mean to address trafficking through a public health lens? Right. So we're looking at it as something that requires prevention and intervention on behalf of public health officials. It requires legislation that really looks at addressing, identifying and and providing services to victims, right? As opposed to only addressing it through criminal justice, which can oftentimes involve criminalizing victims, right? Mm -hmm. But, But if we're looking at the victimizations that are happening and looking at how can we come alongside and support folks, public health lends itself much more to that, right? Addressing how to be helpful and provide support and services um, to victims. And then I would say, I see a need for moving more into addressing these issues through the lens of education so that we're really getting at prevention Uh, and also even through economics. And maybe you could be a little suspicious of me because I'm a social worker talking about economics. But um, what what I would say about that is we need to look at how can we, for example, in, in our policy related to trade deals, how can we include more about how workers are treated? And where our, our products are coming from, right? So if we could focus more on the education piece and prevention and also sort of on how policy think can impact things at the economic level, I think that would be really, really powerful. Well, and here's the thing. When you talk about the economics of this, and I think this is, I think, becoming more of a conversation, I'm really encouraged. I think the case of Centoya Brown, Alyssa Milano wrote a thing in the Washington Post saying this is where the Me Too movement must head next because... With regards particularly to sex trafficking and truly labor trafficking, too, because I would I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I'd feel comfortable saying that labor trafficking numbers head more in women's directions, that there are more women being exploited with labor trafficking as well as sex trafficking. And it's not just about the economic demand of the people who want cheap labor or, you know, sex for pay, but it's also that it is women who economically are put in a position to have to meet that demand. Do you know what I mean? Like that that's it's a demand for 
pay that they need in their lives as much as it is for demand for the services. So until, you know, these very oppressed and vulnerable populations have better access to sustainable, fair labor and pay, I mean, that then there's going to be that meet with the demand. Do you know what I mean? I would agree. I would add to that, that we do have a lot of exploitation of men um, in regards to foreign national workers. Right. Uh, so right. we serve a lot of male clients um, who have been exploited for labor in agriculture, restaurant work. I would also just add that there is a lot of exploitation of men and boys in the LGBTQ community in sex work. It's just under-identified and under-reported. Um, and so we really haven't done good work on that. So I would say it's across the spectrum, really. Any time that we are not allowing equal access to exercising folks' rights as workers, right, when we have these systems of oppression, including in the criminal justice system. So in, in the case of Santoya Brown, you know, it's so important that she was able to receive clemency in her case. Of course, after serving what, 15 years or so already of her sentence. It is really, really important that she received clemency. And so let's focus on the positive of that. This shows us the fact that she was able to get clemency in her case shows us the power of advocacy. You know, a time that is very challenging for folks to engage. We've seen how we can harness the collective power of a caring community, of celebrity, of press, and political engagement, and how if we unify around an issue like this, we can change the outcome in positive ways, right? And so this is an important message when we're maybe feeling disillusioned by how much impact we can really have on social change and politics. We've seen that it can happen since Wade Brown's a really powerful example. I will add, though, that while it's really helpful and important that she received clemency, and I'm so glad for her in that, it's not the same as expungement or vacature, mm-hmm. right? So she's still going to have I hope people will support her and come around her and help her with some additional hurdles that might present because her record's not clear. And as a service provider, what we have seen is that anytime you criminalize a victim, they still have a record. They still have challenges getting housing, getting employment. She's also, just like you said, spent the last 15 years in jail, years she could have been building skills. That's going to have its own challenge. I understand she has done some work on on building some skills while she's been detained. However, add to that the trauma, mm-hmm. all the trauma that comes with that. So she will need additional support. And I just want to say that, you know, we've had a, some examples of this similarly in Kentucky. We had a case a few years ago and it involved an, a woman who just turned 18. She was trafficked for sex as a teenager, but she was also charged with accessory to robbery because her pimp trafficker committed a robbery and she had to be there with him but it was him committing the robbery, but she was charged as an accessory. So she ended up in the justice, the criminal justice system. And her probation officer and the judge saw her case. They reviewed it. They saw her history of exploitation and abuse. And they said, we can do better by her. We can do better by her. And they had the discretion to do that. And so they chose, instead of having her sit in a jail cell, right, and serve out time, they chose to call local service providers and say, we want to help her. We think you all can help her. So we would like to refer her to you and say that she doesn't have to serve time in jail if, as long as she's getting services from you. There are better ways to address these situations, even when there is a, some sort of criminality associated with it, whether it's valid or invalid. I would just would also say in regards to Santoya Brown's case, there are many more cases like that. 
I hope that we will consider how we can lend our voices to additional cases that are continuing to to sit there in our justice system. Um, of course, Santoya's case went through the, the courts back in 2004. I believe that's when she was arrested. Since then, Tennessee has improved their laws at the state level substantially. Matter of fact, they have the highest state rating right now in Tennessee. Of all the states, I believe Shared Hope's report says they have a 96.5, a high A. <laughs> so they've done a lot of work over the last few years in Tennessee. So we could all work on improving some of these things and improving our responses. But I would just also suggest that we consider um, there are many more cases like hers that need our compassion and our advocacy, that child sex trafficking victims should always receive access to services not criminalization, right? Also, I would say we shouldn't put victims in the middle of these criminal cases. And we don't hear much about what happened in regards to the traffickers in Santoya's Brown's case, right? Was that case ever prosecuted? I don't know. But we certainly shouldn't be putting victims as the central witnesses in these cases. We must do better collecting evidence and making sure they're prosecutable without putting victims in the center. And also, I would just say, we don't see much press at all about labor trafficking cases because we're just not doing as good a work on some of them. So a few additional considerations. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. 
That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I was struck as I was preparing for this conversation. Um, I, I just did a Google search for human trafficking and looked at news items. And on the 9th, January 9th, the president signed into law legislation to authorize $430 million to be spent to combat sex and labor trafficking in the United States and abroad. And the only coverage that I found of that was from faith-based outlets. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why the awareness seems to be higher in the faith community here and how we can expand that awareness beyond the faith-based community. A lot of service provision is being done in the faith-based communities. Not all of it. There are many nonprofits that are not related to faith-based communities. But um, we do see a lot of the services being provided through faith-based initiatives. And also, we've seen a lot of awareness being raised through faith-based initiatives. So a lot of the women's faith-based groups, such as the Baptist women, Methodist women, Barrett Presbyterian women, certainly women's religious in the Catholic Church, they've all been sort of unifying and pushing behind issues of of human trafficking. And so there's a a higher level of awareness, I think, than ever before. So that's that's important. There's a lot of power in those voices, right? And when we harness them, and when these women involved in these groups are talking to their partners and talking to their children, we've seen how much impact that can have, right? Politically, as well as engaging the private sector in this work. So I would say we're doing the right thing in, in engaging faith communities because there are lots of ways that faith-based communities can be really, really involved to make a difference. So, Marissa, before we wrap up, give us a call to action. How can we and people listening to the podcast engage more with this issue? So there are so many ways. I would suggest certainly becoming more informed on the issue. So doing some work, doing some homework to find out more. I would also say if you want to directly engage in anti-trafficking programs, you could look and see what's in your community. That's a good starting point. What's there? Are there any gaps or can you just lend your support to existing services? We recently in Kentucky at Catholic Charities worked with um, some other Southeastern states and put together some best practices guiding principles on how to engage in service work with trafficking survivors. And so I would certainly encourage folks to check that out, especially if you're thinking of doing work directly engaging with survivors. But beyond that, for all of us, we can really do that hard work that I think we're not doing enough of in regards to prevention every day with how we engage with and talk to young people. And I can speak directly to my for myself as a parent. So I have a nine-year-old son and I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old daughter, right? And I've been doing this work for about 11 years. And I can say that Doing this work, specifically anti-trafficking work, has really impacted how I parent. We can engage children in very appropriate and meaningful ways. And I try to do that through my work. So, for example, a couple years ago, I was reading a 
a book with my son about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. And at one point uh, in the book, he stopped me and he said, um, Mommy, so I just don't understand why people would fight about whether or not it's okay to have slaves. It's just so wrong. I'm so glad that that's over. I'm so glad that people aren't being abused and made to do things like they used to be when they were slaves. And I looked at him and I, I said, in my brain, I was thinking, I can't let this pass. This is a moment, right, that I could say something. And so I, I looked at him and I said, well, you know, it is really important that we abolish slavery and that those policies are important. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there still are people who are being made to do things against their will, forced to work, taken advantage of. And it's sort of hidden around us, right? So there are people that try to find where that's happening and try to help them. And that's something that mommy tries to do a little bit in her work is help some of those folks. And his eyes got really big and he said, mommy, you work for the CIA? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, no, honey, but I'm a social worker, but let's elevate the position of social workers, right? So that our eyes get big when we talk about that too. But then, so since that time, I've continued to talk to my children about why we shop at certain stores or where our products come from. And with my son, we have these conversations and it's just an, at this point, it's just sort of natural where when we go to the library for a book haul, which we do often, I will make sure as I'm looking through the books that my son is choosing, his graphic novels, the 20 or so that he'll take home on a day, I'll just make sure that there's some that are written by female authors, some that involve women as the primary actors, the primary characters in the book. We don't talk about it. I just put it in there and he's reading them along with all the other books that he's reading because I think there are subtle ways that we can go about addressing the toxic masculinity. We need more men to read women authors, right? And we can start that as children. And I would also say that there are ways to address consent from a very early age. So another example from my son, it doesn't have to be scary, right? It's, it's scary oftentimes for us as the grownups because we feel scared about this big thing and how it will impact our kids. But if we normalize it, if we talk about some of these issues, the same way we talk about how important it is to eat a healthy meal, right? It becomes normal for them, too. So when my son was in kindergarten, he was about five years old, he came home one day and he said to me, hey, mom, there's this girl in my class. She's so beautiful. She had on a purple and pink polka dot dress today, mom. And she's so beautiful. And she's my girlfriend now. (laughs) And I, I looked at him and I said, wow. So, honey, let me ask you a question. Did she also decide that she's your girlfriend? Because if she didn't decide she's your girlfriend, but you did, then she's not really your girlfriend. And he looked at me and he said, no, mom, we talked about it. She said she's my girlfriend, too. And I was like, wow, son, that's big news. news." (laughs) (laughs) But what we did there is we had a conversation about consent. Right. And we can start weaving these in to our conversations with kids at early ages. And if we do that, it allows us to be sort of a safe space for that. And it becomes normalized. And I really think that some of toxic masculinity, some of issues around sexual assault, domestic violence, it really does go back to consent. And these men in particular, because we know a lot of this involves perpetration by men. Um, we know that those, those adult men were once children too, like my nine-year-old son, right? So let's do the hard work of, of doing better by them as kids and addressing these hard issues and not being too scared, but weaving it into our conversations, because I really do think that can make a big difference. I will, I will say I also do focus on my girls, but it's interesting. 
I would have thought I would focus more on my girls, on their safety and preventing risk and those sorts of things. But I do find myself focusing so much on my son also, which I don't think we tend to do in these ways. Thank you so much, Marissa. And you gave us lots of good information for our show notes for listeners who want to dive into this more. So there will be books and documentaries linked up for those of you who have gotten an interest and want to explore this important subject. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Marissa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Marissa for joining us on that important topic. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Oh, I'm just really deep into New Year's habits, new systems, exercising every day, meditating every day, watching all of Conmary and continuing to con Marie around my house. I'm just, I feel like I'm just like in it with January as far as that stuff is concerned. I agree. And I really want to commemorate that on The Nuance Life this week. I've learned a lot over the past month about the power of momentum as it connects mm-hmm. to your New Year's resolutions. So I have a lot of thoughts about that to share on The Nuance Life. I have been totally reclusive this weekend and it's felt really mm-hmm. good. That's what's on my mm-hmm. mind outside of politics. I just needed... I don't know what. I just needed to kind of go into a cave. And we got lots of snow, which is very helpful when you just need to kind of go into a cave. So my kids spend a lot of time outside. I spend a ton of time doing some cleaning and exercising and things like that. But I just wanted to be alone over the weekend. And it felt really good to just be alone. I totally agree. We We did not have snow. It's okay. I'm not basically eaten up with bitterness about how much snow you got trying to move past it (laughs) but we did get crummy like cold rainy weather so there was lots of reading I finished to all the boys I've loved before which was so good and then started a new book my kids and I played lots of board games we're again still working on our goals I'm thinking through our family goals which I think we're going to talk about on the Nuance Life bonus episode so we have family goals of Uh, We wanted to host a dinner party, so we had our first dinner party on Saturday night. That was really fun, and we're continuing our goals to read 170 books with a family. We couldn't tackle our outside goals because the weather was nasty, but just continuing to think through that. I really like to take all of January instead of just putting all the pressure on January 1st, and so I'm still journaling a lot and thinking through, like, what if this is working, what isn't, and I just love that whole process. Discernment. There we are again. That's right. That's right. I love it. Well, thank you all for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be talking more about New Year's resolutions on The Nuanced Life this week, in addition to sharing some really powerful commemorations. We'll be back here on Friday to talk with you about House Committees. We hope to see many of you in Washington, D.C. in person this Friday evening. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsu Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsu Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash Politics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, 
Sarah's has been Nicholas Holland and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.